The New Disruptors is sponsored in part this week by Type Engine. From the passionate indie publisher to the multi-publication agency, Type Engine is the beautifully simple publishing platform to deliver your works digitally. Publish long-form content, photos, and rich media with Type Engine. Visit typeengine.net slash newdisruptors for more details about making your own electronic publication. And if you'd like to become a direct supporter of this podcast, visit patreon.com slash newdisruptors, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. Thanks this week to our patrons Andy Bayo, Sean Wickett, and George O'Toole. Help us reach our goal of $1,000 in Patreon support per month to produce transcripts of every episode. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that is bound to interest you periodically. I'm Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of the magazine. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts, which you can find at boingboing.net. You might also like Week, which is hosted by Boing Boing founder Mark Frauenfelder, in which he and friends of Boing Boing talk about interesting projects and geeky stuff. Jane Friedman and Manjula Martin run Scratch Magazine, a born digital publication that tells writers what they're worth and how the publishing industry sausage-making factory actually works. Jane has an extensive background as an editor and may be best known for her decade at Writer's Digest. She's currently the web editor of Virginia Quarterly Review and teaches at the University of Virginia. Manjula is a freelance writer whose work has appeared widely in places like Modern Farmer, San Francisco Weekly, and in our own The Magazine, in which she wrote about musician and producer John Vanderslice. She's also worked as an editor and a communications strategist for a variety of nonprofit and social justice groups. And thanks for being on the podcast. Pleasure. Yeah, it's great to be here. They're sharing one mic. We'll identify. So, so this is Jane is on on mic on, on the same mic as as Modula, uh, and we're here in a hotel room at the what's the name of this conference you're here for? Uh, we're here for AWP, which is the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. Uh, it's a collection of people, primarily from undergraduate and graduate creative writing programs. So about twelve thousand people. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't realize it was that big. It's enormous. So a ton of publishers are here as well, though, aren't they? Yes. Um, mainly literary presses and university presses. What are they here for? Are they trying to appeal to, uh, they're trying to sell their publications, get contributors? Both. Yes. So it's a huge networking event, primarily. And then there's a book fair that has close to a thousand exhibitors. And that's normally what the publishers do here. They exhibit and then they also attend and speak on panels. Oh, that's great. So this is a, a perfect entree point, is uh, a perfect entry point to what we're talking about is uh, uh, Jane and Manjula started a publication recently, which we're going to get to, but I think um, we're going we're to come about it uh, from the, the back end is talk about backgrounds and how we wound up here. And uh, so, so Jane, you've worked in publishing for uh, a couple of decades now. What got you involved in this path as a, an editor and then, and then into Writer's Digest? Uh, well, it was right out of college that I got a publishing job uh, at a company called F&W Publications, uh, which has now become F&W Media. And I spent several years working in the crafts community there, doing craft books like How to Paint Animals on Rocks. <laughs> and um, But my real goal in joining the company was to move over to Writer's Digest, which is another community. And so I worked for Writer's Digest for most of my time there, and that's how I kind of got into the... Um, author education path that I'm now on. 
And Writer's Digest, for readers who are listeners who don't know, um, you know, I've, I don't know if I ever consulted it because I came late into the freelancing career and had a, a specialty. I worked in the trades and had kind of publications that I came in to write for. What yeah. does Writer's Digest offer, or, or during your time and now, what do they offer writers? Uh, it started in 1920 with two products, the magazine Writer's Digest, which was primarily about how to write better and get published for freelancers, but also for, for authors, and Writer's Market, which is a was and still is a huge directory of places to get published and it only listed and still only lists paying publications. So it's a directory. I mean, that's interesting. So the 1920s, there was a market for people trying to figure out how to market themselves and become uh, become freelance writers who could actually make a living at it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I had, when I was publisher there, I had the very first edition of Writer's Market, which was like not much bigger than like a five by seven note card. <laughs> and, you know, it had about maybe a half an inch width. Um, and it's so adorable. So like a tiny, oh, I see. So like a tiny little thing and you carry it around. And so people would go from, so, I mean, I know this is the thing is there's like the submission form, like what are they looking for? What form do you submit? But if you were in New York and you had one of these things, you'd maybe literally be walking around door to door. Possibly. Yes. I think that's lovely. Uh, And so at Writer's Digest, what changed during the time that you were there? Because you were there during what I would think is a big upheaval from about 2001 Mm -hmm. to 2010. You were deeply, that's probably most involved. What, What happened to that publication during that period of time? Oh, it was dramatic. Um, During the time that I was there, everything got digitized. So Writer's Market, the huge directory, became a digital database that people could subscribe to. We also shifted our focus primarily from freelancing, which was like in the... In some of the most successful decades of Writer's Digest magazine was in the 70s and the 80s when uh, you could really make a good living as a freelance writer. It was also kind of a male, more male publication. If you look at some of those back issues, it's it's very interesting. But it shifted from that to something that was more geared towards the aspiring author and the audience became more female. Uh, And so that was kind of a shift, I think, in basically writer's aspirations and also where Writer's Digest could better make a profit. So it helps. That includes the, the Writer's Digest was both for, so originally more for magazine or newspaper, yeah. or like periodicals. And, exactly. But it, that sounds like it's shifted to uh, like ebook publishing, self-publishing as yes. well. Because I know that's, uh, do you know the statistic? I can't remember. Something like 350,000 self-published titles in America in 2013. I'll put it in the show notes. It's a huge yeah. number, right? Yeah, it's enormous. And uh, Writer's Digest in, I think it was 2001, debuted the self-published book awards. Oh, wow. Okay. And actually, one of my first assignments at Writer's Digest was to do a special newsstand issue called Publishing Success, which was kind of code for self-publishing. <laughs> so that was actually my specialization or my beat when I first started for them. Um, and so I've been following it since then. And of course, things have changed dramatically since 2001, since there's so much do-it-yourself now where you don't need anybody's help. You don't have to pay thousands of dollars to some vanity press to put your book out. Yeah, I mean, that was used to be the the you know the name for it. It was vanity publishing because mm-hmm. it wasn't real publishing. It was vanity publishing. I don't hear the word vanity publishing much anymore because it's grown to dominate uh, – that category is grown to dominate the, the sheer number of titles. Right, right, exactly. That's lovely. And Manjula, your um, your background, you've come more from the, the writing, uh, communications side of things, but you've also worked as an editor. How did you get sucked into the issue of like helping writers write or helping writers find uh, uh, places to write? Um, 
Somewhat accidentally, to be honest, <laughs> but certainly not without intention. So yeah, I mean, I have a really varied background. I've had a lot of different kinds of careers and jobs. And I started working in publishing in the magazine business in the 1990s in New York. I worked at a magazine called Pause Magazine, um, which was a, a general interest uh magazine for people affected by HIV and AIDS. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, okay. So it was a explicitly, you know, um, a magazine that, that explicitly had a, a, a sort of an advocacy bent in terms of the community it was speaking to and with. And again, a very sort of specific audience. It was quite groundbreaking, in fact, in terms of the way it sort of set up a lifestyle magazine around a topic of interest like that. And they were also quite political uh, back in the day. And so I started... Uh, there as a writer. <laughs> and then sort of, you know, t my career took me into the arts and the nonprofit arts. And there I sort of learned a lot more about the larger landscape for people who I would call creative workers, people who make a living by doing things like writing or graphic design, etc., um, largely as a day job who also do art. And so I picked up that perspective definitely from that side of my career. Specifically, I got involved in Scratch because I started a website called Who Pays Writers, mm -hmm. um, which began as a Tumblr in December of 2012. So it's about just over a year old. And I was bantering about on Twitter one morning uh, with a bunch of other writers, including Sari Botten, who's one of the contributors for our current issue. And we were talking about how it was really frustrating as writers to not know whether or not a publication even paid at all before mm -hmm. pitching them. And we were talking about sort of a lot of more literary publications or, or online only journals, places that, you know, aren't paying the Condé Nast dollar a word rate, right? And lie somewhere in between, in between genres in many ways. Uh, so it's not quite a blog, but not quite a big old publication, you know? And so I sort of was being flippant and throughout like, do we need a list of this? Like, do we need a list on the internet of who pays and what? And everyone said, yes. And so I logged off Twitter and went and like opened a Tumblr account right then and made it with a really minimal template. And I just put the question, who pays writers and invited people to submit rates that they had been paid by publications. And it grew from there into uh, what's becoming a really solid listing. So I, people write in and report their rates, uh, which they're welcome to do at any time in an anonymous form that we have set up on the website. And I published them. It's funny how that seems to be um, – not, it's not proprietary information exactly, but I mean I've been working as a freelancer for since 1994, and there's rarely been any transparency about – what people pay and freelancers, we always are in a position where, I mean, there are actually, I mean, there are freelancer unions down. There's the authors guild, which I belong to for a while until I got unhappy with their position on Google books, which various <laughs> people have various opinions about, but there are groups that defend, they don't defend pay rates. And I know there's this issue. Photographers have always talked about, they've sometimes been accused of colluding on rates as freelancers, because if you're a contractor, you're subject to different laws than if you're an employee. So there's always been this kind of like, how much, what direction can we go as freelancers? You know, we can't set rates and we can't strike. We don't know. And, you know, and people need to make a living. So you're not going to be able to create collective action, but the lack of information has always been maddening to me. But now Jane, what the writer's digest and the affiliated publication, like that was part of the goal of that publication 
wasn't I mean you had people paying to list uh, what rate or what they wanted, but did they list rates as well? Were they required to list rates? Oh well, Writers Market was uh, you didn't have to pay to be listed if you were a publication. It was an editorial driven market. Mm. Uh, it still is, and so a, a staff would send out questionnaires to every publisher they could find get the editors to send back information about the pay rates and what they're interested in and then publish it. And so that cycle would happen every year. Mm-hmm. Um, that cycle, you know, started to happen a little bit quicker as things became more digital, but it was always, and it, it excluded at least the big daddy writer's market. It always excluded non-paying markets and it always listed pay rates. Well, oh, I misunderstood. So it wasn't, I'm sorry. I thought it was an advertising based thing. So it was it was, it listed publications that pay writers, not, they don't have to pay to be listed in writer's Correct. market. I Correct. understand now. Right. So there are like baby market books. Like there's a, <laughs> there's a novel and short story writer's market that does list all publications, mm-hmm. even those that don't pay, because obviously there are many literary journals and presses that don't necessarily pay, but they're still quality. And I think something that is interesting about where we're coming at it from is that, you know, like on Who Pays Writers, I'm reporting rates that are coming, the reports are coming from writers. Right. They're not coming from publications. And that's something that when we folded Who Pays Writers under the Scratch brand, um, so it's now lives at our website on Scratch, it's off of Tumblr. You know, that's something that is very much uh, part of what we're doing with Scratch is really saying like, hey, you know, like we are here from the writer's perspective and we're really sort of, you know, want these voices and this kind of transparency among people who are writers, not just sort of the people who are in other positions making larger decisions. So uh, there's this question that I I think we should ask is, um, you know, how big is the market? How big, how much can it support? And I, I, we were talking for the podcast and I get queries from people say, I like to be, I used to be, I like to be a blogger. It was interesting how that's changed too. It was like, Hey, I see you're a blogger and you seem to be successful at it. I had my own blog and I had advertisers and, and then it became, you know, Hey, I want to be a writer. I want to write for all of these online blogs or publications or born digital publications like scratch or the magazine. How do I do that? And it's, and I always, Oh, it's like, should I tell them? Should I say, <laughs> don't do it kid or, you know, adults, if they're older, like it's a, it's a mugs business, but I don't want to say that because if people are driven and they have things to say and they can tell a good story, there's still all these places, there's all these manners of way you can do it. Is the market big enough to support all the people? I mean, it's not all the people, but is the market big enough to encourage people to come in and try to get paid, try to become professional writers or paid writers at least? I think the people who are persistent can make a career out of it. So when I when I encounter aspiring writers, whether it's book journalism online, doesn't matter. I'm really seeking to see their underlying motivation and trying to suss out their personality and if they kind of have the um, the grit to stick with it long enough for it to pay off. Because I think most people, well, I shouldn't say most people, a lot of people that I encounter at writing conferences maybe they've only just, they're trying to fulfill like a childhood dream. And so they have this vision in their head of that dream and they haven't yet bumped up against the reality. And so I'm always looking for that persistence. Uh, It's someone who is driven by more than just, I want to make some money. And there's that really famous quote about if, if there's anything else you can do, do that instead of writing. But if you must write, then of course, go ahead. And so I, I take that approach. Like if this is something that's in you and you can't possibly do anything else, yet, I'm not going to discourage that person. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's also a, a it's, there's a very large space between I am a professional writer. I make a great living at some form of selling words that I write and 
a childhood dream. You know, mm. I mean, one of the things that I've had to figure out for myself is what am I good at and where are my comfort zones? So it's also a lot about knowing yourself both as a writer and as, you know, a person shaping a career. So like, for example, I don't make a full-time living off of doing freelance journalism, partially because I'm sort of picky and I only like to write the things I want to write. And I know I'm old enough that I know that about myself and partially because I have a lot of other things that I want to do. And so the amount of hustle that it takes and persistence to really do that is not something that I feel like I can manage fully with the other things I want to do. So my income comes from a mix of nonprofit consulting, copywriting, and freelance journalism. I also write memoir. I also do a lot of more creative work that may not make any money, you know? Um, and so I think that's the other thing for folks who, who have that dream is to really not only learn how you are as a writer and where your strengths are as a writer, but where your strengths are as, you know, what you would call, whatever you want to call it, a business person or an entrepreneur or a worker. I think that's, I mean, that's right. Is that you're a freelance writer. You are, it's a business. It's not something you do. It's funny. I, I mean, people leave jobs and they think that they're going to be able to write full time. And I'm like, well, there's the accounting, there's the other stuff, even if you're working full time. And so the dirty secret that we know that we will now share is that even publications that pay uh, the publications that pay extremely well are far and few between the publications that pay a living wage for the amount of time you put into articles are actually very small. And so if you don't have a staff job, being able to actually make a full time living in a major U.S. city is very, very, very difficult. I know people who do it where they're only doing writing and they're working, you know, sort of whatever, a 40 to 60 hour week, not a hundred hour week. But it seems to me part of what Scratch is about, part of what Who Pays Writers is about, part of the modern transition economy is that there are more places than ever before where people can write and be published either for, you know, let's, and we'll get into the like, should you work for free thing in a moment, but like either for love or for money, and it might be modest, you might get $50 or $150, but you're paid for something that that opportunity never existed before. So that's money that's being pushed out into the writing marketplace that simply didn't exist when there were only print publications. Have you seen, you've got two different perspectives and two different careers that have come to this. Have you seen that happen? Am I, do I evaluate that right, that there's, that the ability to be a freelance writer and sustain yourself from it is very difficult, but the ability to have part of your career is maybe easier than it used to be. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're yes. done here. No, I'm sorry. But I, but I, well, I, mean, I don't mean to be a big question, but I mean, that's kind of fundamentally why you started a publication too, it seems like, is that there is more opportunity for people to be able to write and make part of a living. Yeah. And I mean, you know, sort of in terms of sheer amount of voices being heard and sheer amount of, quote, content being produced. Um, yeah, there's more than ever, you know. Yeah. The longer I'm in the business, the, the more I understand the value of relationships and uh, networking your way to more opportunities that will mm. provide a sustainable living. So that's why I think that grit is so important, because when you're just starting out, your network is likely very weak and you're just not going to find the opportunities you want. But as you progress, I think it becomes more and more viable presuming that the quality of your work is good and people are saying good things about it and your and your uh, word is spreading about, wow, you do great stories on X, um, which also I think it helps when people have a niche or specialize at least to start because they become known for doing a particular type of story that people want. It doesn't hurt to have a shtick and to build that brand and, and I think it's easier to get assignments. I always say someone needs to have a gimmick because I got my real breakthrough. I started with fonts. 
I had specialized knowledge about how – so for trade magazines, about installing fonts and using them with like Quirk Express and PageMaker. And weirdly, that was very, very valuable knowledge 20 years ago. But my big thing was Wi-Fi as I was an early writer about Wi-Fi and that built my entire career almost by accident. And that's how I got in The Economist, New York Times – a bunch of other things is that way, but in, if I hadn't had that, it's very difficult to stand out. It, so this this gets down to like the number of outlets that are out there. So it used to be, I mean, the number of newspapers has declined. The number of periodicals has to uh, print periodicals has declined. The amount they pay has typically gone down or it's stagnated. I have friends who are writers in the 1970s, and they said, "Yeah, we got a buck a word." In you know 1970, and I'm like, "That's great when you get a buck a word today. It's worth you know what is that like 20 cents or something." Right. And something that we're not touching on, which I think does currently play a role, might play a bigger role, is getting paid by your readers rather than by a publication. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't want to use like the superstars because they're outliers, but I will. I mean, Andrew Sullivan has has moved through several, I think, different models of running his career. And now it's essentially run by the people who love his work. And I think... um, it's kind of Kevin Kelly's thousand true fans, which I don't know if it's a thousand people, but if you have this audience that follows you wherever you go, when I look at writers, especially book authors, that's kind of the strategy that I'm advocating. Look for those thousand people who are basically going to buy everything that you do. I think that gets a little tougher for journalism, but I still think that there are, there are journalists who are working that model. Yeah. I mean, there's some great journalists out there who are definitely actively working that model, you know, Anne Friedman comes to mind as a person who's who's really doing great work and being really transparent about it. I mean, largely a lot of what she writes about is her building her own brand. And I get her newsletter. It's fabulous. You know, there's definitely a lot out there. I think one of the challenges, as you guys were saying, is like, so I subscribe to X number of weekly new link, link roundups from X journalists. At some point, it's going to be too many, and I'm not going to read them all, you know. And so I think it's also a question, as Jane said, of like finding a community of people who are supporting each other in their work as writers and as people who are building their businesses. Because I think that that if everyone has a megaphone, no one can hear each other, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's pause for a moment so I can thank one of this week's sponsors, Type Engine. So you know that I published this thing called The Magazine, and we have a bespoke app. It's something that was built from scratch before there was a platform to do this. Well, Type Engine is a platform designed to let you publish your own magazine. Type Engine lets you produce a publication as an app. They have a web-based content management system in which you draft your publication and a complimentary Type Engine Preview iOS app in which you look at how the publication will appear before you submit it for review for Apple. This also allows you to preview content before you publish each issue. Here's the good news. Now, you've heard a lot about Apple's newsstand and whether being in the newsstand or out is good. Well, Type Engine lets you choose to create a newsstand app or a standalone iOS app. They do have an Android app in the work, and it's planned for early 2014. Every time an issue is published, it's automatically pushed to the app and to the web version of your publication. Publishers can also fully integrate their Type Engine publication with an existing website and sell web subscriptions to their content. If you've got an existing subscriber base on your website and you want to let those subscribers have free access to your Type Engine publication, it's not a problem. They integrate with a bunch of web subscription providers. 
providers. Are you a design agency with lots of clients? It's not a problem. You can run all of your clients' publications through the web console and even let your individual clients upload their own content and their own designs. Type Engine pricing is aligned with each publisher's success, creating a low barrier of entry in terms of time and money. Larger publishers can also pay a flat monthly fee. Each publisher maintains complete ownership of their app and the content. If you've ever wanted to produce an electronic periodical and what stymied you is the technical overhead, the amount of work you have to do yourself, well, Type Engine has a solution. From the passionate indie publisher to the multi-publication agency, Type Engine is designed to be a simple publishing platform that delivers your works digitally. Type Engine was a generous supporter during our Kickstarter campaign, and I hope you'll take a look at typeengine.net slash new disruptors and see what it takes to put your own mark on things with their help. And now back to the podcast. Well, let's maybe we should walk through just that range of things because I think there's so many now. So we have there's traditional print publications that have mass circulation. There's some big newspapers that typically have traditionally paid badly and still pay badly, but they pay and they are looking for outside stuff. The New York Times I haven't written for for years. Last time I wrote for them, they did not pay well, but it wasn't hideously bad, and it was and it's a great place to publish, and it was a great place to work. The Economist does not pay fabulously, but they pay pretty decently, and they're a great place to work. But those are very difficult to get in. They can only hire a certain number of people, yeah. and and whatever. But and they, and they have uh, you know they're strong print and digital. Then you have what I think are like more specialized print publications, the trades and things like that, which have increasingly gone digital. I mean, Mental Floss is, for instance, a very interesting example, or even Cracked Magazine of all things, where I remember reading that as a kid, it was crazy. They publish great stuff. It cracked online. It's fascinating what yeah, they run there. Funny. Yeah, and um, uh, so there's uh, these uh, all these outlets that have started up that maybe have a, a print component, but electronic has now or digital internet has become predominant. Then you have born digital like like us, like our first publications, and then that support model. And the support model is now seem to it's breaking apart into lots of different things too. There's Patreon, which I use for this podcast, and I know cartoonists are starting to find big uptake there because. Mm-hmm. You can support a cartoonist because you like what they do as a category. For journalists, harder, but it's still a way to collect money without building your own system. There's Kickstarter for particular projects that I've seen being used for journalism. There's um, a Beacon, which I subscribe to because one of uh, one of the magazine writers in Pakistan is part of that. I'm like, I want to support her and try this experiment out. So she gets my part of my five bucks a month to that, and I get access to all the journalists that are trying this out as an experiment to fund themselves. So there's so many models you could pursue. How do you pick one, or do you now pursue all of these at the same time to make all, all or part of your living? Well, yeah, I just have a thought, you know, not to directly answer your question, and then Jane maybe has something to you say talk about, about that. You like, but I right. think, I mean, to me, that is that is what I love about the idea of making a magazine. And I would love to hear if you feel the same way, Glenn, because you also make a magazine. To me, that is really what a magazine is: is sort of like a curated space to sort of cut down some of that clutter, right? And so that can be shaped however you want it to be shaped, and it can be delivered how, and supported however you want it to be delivered and supported. But that is, I think, what's really excited about like the actual form or personality of having a magazine as opposed to a blog or a, you know, stream or et cetera. I've seen more people start magazines too, like the toast, which you guys have profiled uh, one of the creators of the toast Yeah, uh, and I'm writing. So here's a little funny thing is I love the toast. I noticed they were looking for, they're trying to raise a little bit of money from people who really like what they do. They published something I thought was wonderful. So I gave them a little money 
I'm like, thank you. And then I see them putting out a pitch request on Twitter, and I'm like, I'm an expert on that. So now I'm writing. They're going to pay me <laughs> after I contributed from a different backer to write for them about something. I'm like, that, and that's how the world goes around. We shouldn't all be putting money from one pocket to the other, but in this case, it's great. That's great. Yeah, we love the toast. Yeah, well, to, to answer your question, I think it's not one model, but you're really diversifying across them all. And I think that's smart, especially right now. And I think it's probably going to be that's going to continue to be the case for most writers. I think it's the case for most media companies, too. I mean, no smart media company is just relying on the print publication or even the digital publication to carry them. I mean, like if you look at the Atlantic, they're they're getting into events and they're they're getting into other types of media. And it's I think everyone is looking at how can we slice and dice this content? How can we build on our specializations to do different things? Uh, it's like the the innovator's dilemma where, you know, Clay Christensen goes into all these different ways. You can take the old model and transform it into things that will be better suited to making money in the future, which is a tall order uh, you, for anyone. But you, you pick off the stuff at the bottom, which is like BuzzFeed and Huffington Post did an amazing job. I mean, it's whatever you think about the journalism they do or what they do, it's like they did an incredible job taking like a trillion page views at the bottom where they get paid almost nothing per view, but it adds up to a lot of money and they have conquered that model and they're moving up the chain. They hire they hired lots of you know, more and more serious journalists and are doing expensive features of the type that only like family owned newspapers were doing for and in New York Times were doing for years. So it's weird to see the value be captured out of that too. You mentioned briefly this issue about quality is that not everyone is a writer and we know this as editors, we know this and uh, I get pitches of all kinds without singling any person out of course is that, you know, some of the pitches are very good and they don't necessarily turn into a good article. Some of the pitches are weak and you work with someone and it turns into something that's amazing and some are just like, okay, we just need to run that. Like just go out and write it and they turn in something and you run it practically intact. And those are people who are all putting themselves out there, not to mention the people who aren't trying to get published. I always ask other writers and editors about what people should do who want to become better writers or to figure out if they can write. How do you, know, how do you figure out if you're actually competent as a writer because it could crush you if you're not? And if you feel like you and you're given some encouragement, how do you become a better writer? You look, you know, everyone's laughing. You can't see the problem with the audio. Everyone's laughing. So, so Jane, what's Jane? What is the uh, what you're laughing about? How do you figure out if people are competent or how they would judge themselves to be oh, competent? It's really hard. And I think Ira Glass actually has the best talk on this. Mm. Um, everyone should go to YouTube and watch his four part series. On uh, it, he's actually talking about how. What's that? Is that the storytelling? Yes, yeah. he did this this series like on storytelling in. and about doing pod what was podcasts or video casts or something. It applies to everybody. And he talks about how you kind of get into this game, the writing game or the media game, because you have a good taste. And like you can see what's good. But when you first start out, what you produce does not match like your taste. And there's a learning curve. And like he talks about how it took him ten years to get any good, but he knew that what he was producing was crap. And he knew the only way to close the gap was to keep producing more work. You, you keep producing, you keep producing, and finally, it's like, I don't know if anyone can tell you when that happens, but finally your taste matches what you're producing. If, if you have the ability, and that's the thing that's scary, right, is can you, have you had to tell people, you know, I mean, I, I've, God, I don't know if I've ever had to tell somebody, like, I've had to tell a couple people, like, you probably shouldn't pitch because I don't think we're ever going to run anything from you. I, I almost, I don't think I have ever told someone they're never going to be good enough because yeah. I've been surprised yeah. at how people can turn around. The term writer is vast and 
can be defined in a variety of ways and everyone, you know, needs to define that for themselves. Um, and obviously if you're talking about journalism, it's slightly different than if you're talking about be- writing books or fiction or poetry or whatever. So just to acknowledge that, that everyone has their own different definition of what I am a writer means as a sentence. Um, so if you want to keep a dream journal and write in your dream journal every morning and that's writing, you know, <laughs> um, but obviously we're talking about writing for publication here. And the other thing is just that I think I would say in terms of actual, just practical advice, if you want to become a better writer, find editors, be edited. I crave being edited and I I just, I just had a piece that I published in the all and Corey like cut a bunch of it and he, and he was like, like sort of, you know, hesitant about that because we hadn't worked together before. And, and, and I came back and I was like, oh my God, thank you for cutting like half of that article because I know that it was too long or whatever. But like the editor writer relationship is precious. It is, can I swear? Sure. It's fucking gold, yeah. you know? Like it's like, um, and so that's something that I think is, is, is it, is something that I see with young writers is that they actually haven't had a lot of those relationships. And I think because of the, a lot of the ways that media properties are set up now, those relationships are changing and fading a bit. So that's an area that I think is just like, you can't, you can't replace a good editor. Like you can learn so much. You need a teacher and you need that relationship, that back and forth. Like no one is going to have an amazing piece come out of them, just them by itself. Perfect. That is not reality. It's yeah. I mean, you you encounter those sometimes, and they're like little golden diamond gems. The my managing editor, Brittany Shute, who I think you both know. Um, yes. Brittany, uh, the first piece she I'm going to brag about her since she's works in the publication. The first piece she turned in was perfect. Now I've had to edit other stuff she's written. Brittany, if you're listening, I have. You know, I've edited your other stuff. But the first piece she turned in was one of those bits of miracles where it was like, I don't need to, I just need to, you know, don't, you don't want to take the big hammer and smash the diamond. You want to go tick, 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 tick. And uh, a few other writers like that, they turn in a draft and you're like, holy Moses. But the amount of, this gets into the, how do you actually make a living thing? Many of the writers who do work that that refine when it's turned in, they actually can't afford to do that much work. They're working at, you know, at a wage that's not affordable because of the hours they put in to produce something that's that polished. But yeah, it's, it's so... The editorial relationship, that's kind of the thing that blogging both brought so many more people into writing regularly and in public venues, which I think was fantastic. But it also made people confused about the role of disintermediation. And an editor is an intermediator only if they're preventing you from getting published, like at a publication that only publishes a certain amount of stuff, like the New York Times. But an editor is not an intermediator if they help you do your thing if they're not trying to keep you from being published or trying to get you better. So I think editors were confused with gatekeepers because typically you only worked in environments in which editors were gatekeepers. They turned you down. Yeah, and anyone who's ever read Slush, um, like at a literary magazine or any type of publication, um, you know, is both familiar with sort of uh, – writers feeling like the editors are against them and maybe sort of ready to say no. And also familiar with like, when I read, I love reading slush. Cause it's like, it is hopeful. Like I am looking for that piece. I want it to be there, you know, as an editor, like I want something amazing to come out of that pile of envelopes in the old days. <laughs> we, we have that now we have a pitch system and we get, I got this ridiculous piece from a first time writer. He'd taken a writing class and uh, he wrote this article and I was like, 
is this is, I had actually I just sent it to Brittany and say, is this as good as I think it is? This guy's never written anything before and it strikes me incredibly positively. And she's like, yes, it is. And we ran it. And his in subsequent pieces, it's harder because that was the piece that he worked on in class and he polished, but he's still, he's writing for us now regularly. And it's been fun to discover new people in that way too, where they have a voice. And uh, how, how much do you folks um, think people like that writing classes are a way to go or because there's so many different kinds of writing we can do. And we're talking specifically, obviously, in this podcast about reportage and nonfiction, essay, all the things that involve reality-based writing. But is that useful? Have you found it? I know you. Te- I mean, I know you teach writing, Jane, so hopefully it is useful for you to do. But, but what should people look for then if they want to uh, improve their writing in a, in a I guess in a formal way, in a rigorous yeah. way. Yeah. Well, there are a lot, there's so many options at this point. So it partly depends on your budget and how much time you can spend. I mean, there are low residency MFA programs if you have a lot of money and a lot of time, which can be very valuable. But you have to look really closely at the instructors or the faculty and make sure that they're producing the type of work that kind of mirrors where you think you might be headed. Um, not that you won't eventually strike out on your own distinctive path, but you need to have, there needs to be some commonalities between you and that instructor. Um, and non, I mean, I know there's so many creative writing programs, but there's plenty of nonfiction and essay. Like, there's a lot of oh, programs you can go to for that as well. Absolutely. And then almost every university has some t- type of continuing education program. Uh, and there are also in in some of the major cities, like Boston, has Grub Street, which runs phenomenal classes, very affordable. Um, if you really, you know, a degree is not the answer for actually most writers, but Grub Street in Boston, and I'm trying to think of some others. The Thinking Writer Online. Um, There's so many great options, and it's really, I think it's helpful to get recommendations from people who have taken classes from particular instructors, Um, but I think you want to look for those opportunities where you're getting feedback on your work. We we should talk about writers' groups, too. I'm sorry, Manjula has, you you talk about that first, yes. Um, Yeah, and, you know, I think... As Jane just said, you know, a degree is often not the answer for a lot of writers, depending on what you want to do with it. Um, And depending on your resources, it costs money to get a college degree, particularly an MFA program, unless you're the one who gets to go work with George Saunders or whatever. (laughs) Unfortunately, there's only one George Saunders. Or fortunately, I don't know. (laughs) But I, you know... So post the age when one or the era when one would want to be attending a university that, you know, there are all those great classes that Jane mentioned. But also I have a writer's group that I attend once a week, every week. Oh, my goodness. That's great. Yeah. Every Tuesday night we meet at a bar or cafe and we critique each other's stories. You know, there's six to eight members. Uh, We also spend a good deal of time talking about television, film and celebrity gossip. That's in in our agenda. We actually have space for that, which is important. Um, And so not only is that a place where you can really sort of have a sustained working critique relationship with other writers, you have deadlines. And for me, like my group has really become like a cultural home. Like, like it's important to me that we talk about TV and movies in addition to books that we're reading, um, because that's a group in which I really sort of you know, we all have slightly different tastes. It's not that we all love the same things. We all write incredibly different things. It's a wide range of people in terms of where they're at in their publishing careers. And we love it. It's great. It's, it's, a, it's like nurturing culturally in addition to being quite useful. And I know this is uh, – and that's that um, uh, who you know, you know, friend of a friend, word of mouth thing too is 
So Brittany, my managing editor, um, well, you're not part of her group, though. You have a whole other group. She's got a group of people, too. I have a whole other group. Sometimes I go to her Lady Journo. She has like a Lady Journo drinks thing. Exactly. And, um, and yeah. I think everybody in that group has now been published in the magazine. And or and some new people in that group came because they turned out to live in San Francisco or Oakland, and she's in San Francisco. And uh, I know. let's let's talk about it. It's not an elephant in the room, exactly, but I know it's part of your thinking, too, is that it's hard for women to get published relative to how hard it is for men. And I will tell you, as... Uh, a male editor, um, it has been more eye-opening than I realized. And I wrote an article about this like over a year ago called Gender Binder, about you know yeah. binders full of women kind of thing. Sorry, that was the time that was going yeah. on. But it was, it was we were not getting enough pitches. We started as a more techie publication. We shifted to a more general interest thing with sort of a geek focus. And I know a million female writers, and we were having a heck of a time getting just the pitches. Like there was something wrong with our pitch process because when we got pitches in, we were accepting a disproportionate number from women because most of the pitches that came from women were better I'm going to say this than most of the pitches that came from men. You can say that. I'm going to say that. So men will pitch, and I'm just going to, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a reverse sexist is that men will, which you can't be, right? Is that men will pitch any goddamn thing. Yeah. Men will pitch any goddamn thing. They will never have written before and not be able to write. They will not even look at anything you've written. They will, all this stuff. Women, on average, the pitches I get are much more well thought out. They take more effort and time to get there, and they're much more likely to be accepted. So we went through this little bit of soul searching, like, what are we doing wrong? We got some feedback about the link even to how we had sort of hidden the pitch link without thinking about it. And I uh, asked around, I said, why aren't you pitching? And they said, I don't know, you were accepting pitches. All the men found the link. Very few hmm. women found the link. Like, not, we were having nine to one men to women pitching. By, by name, you know, just assuming. Anyway, so we changed that a little bit. We did a few things, and suddenly the pitch ratio started to veer more towards what I think is the actual representation of women in, like, the nonfiction writing world. And then we've, since then, our byline, you know, the, we don't we don't set a quote or anything, but it's just, it has actually naturally evolved. I brought Brittany on, who's a terrific writer, and she does a lot of outreach herself because she's trying to encourage other women who whatever blockades they set up for them that a man in the same circumstance is not setting up to pitch or to write. She's helping break down some of those as well. So, I mean, how does that play out with what, what you're doing and what you've experienced? Um, well, I think something like 95% of our contributors have been women so far. <laughs> I mean, partially, Jane and I write a good deal of the magazine ourselves, so that may be part of the reason why. But that's where we stand in the Vita count. And I mean, I think it's always amazing to me, you know, and we could definitely get into like an hour long lecture on like the history <laughs> of like the patriarchy and sexism and ingrained sexism. But I think. It's always amazing to me when people say we can't find women writers or or when people say that I, most of the writers I know are women and most of the editors I know are also women. So it's always – it's continually shocking to me. Well, I come from that, the tech world where there's yeah. balance, the balance is off typically for staffers but not necessarily freelancers. There's a much more even balance among freelancers. Staffers tend to be mostly male on most publications and mostly white men. And uh, Jamil uh, Bowie wrote a piece for us oh, in the magazine great. yeah, last year about that thing and, and looked down the mastheads of all these technologies, all these born digital or digital ones as well. So yeah, so that's it. Like, it's not like – it would be one thing if I looked at all the freelance writers I knew and it was 90% men and it is not that. Ever. And it's, and it's often – like about any category, I will start listing people off at anywhere from 40 to 70% of the names I list will be women. So right, so that wasn't the problem. Yeah, and I think that, you know, so sort of the, the a practical takeaway from that is what I always say to other women is just is ask. Ask and ask for more every time. 
like, and I have a personal rule that like if someone offers me say a rate, I always have to ask for more, Mm -hmm. even if I don't think I'm going to get it. And even if I feel weird about that, just because I know that is so ingrained in me to not do that as a woman. I also think that, you know, another part of this conversation is having a wider range of voices across the board. So that also means folks who are from different racial or ethnic backgrounds. And I think something that I'm interested in exploring with Scratch, is also, it also means folks from different class backgrounds, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, you know, it's it's very easy to keep the gender count because it's it's relatively more clear than other counts. But I think, you know, I was talking to a friend about I'm trying to make an effort to reach out to more writers of color because that's something that we're really lacking at the moment. And I, I was talking to a friend and what we ended up with was just, you have to build relationships. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm emailing like all these amazing writers who I think are great because I follow them on Twitter and asking them to pitch, which I do and I do continually, I don't have a relationship with these people. So why would they say yes? You know? So and I think that's true for, for all of these, these, these conversations about inclusion or about just having more interesting and more diverse and better voices and not just having like the same old white dudes, you know? I think you have to build relationships. Uh, and uh, that's a slow process also. It's not like, um, okay, you're on one side of the line and then you're on the other side of the line, right, as an editor. Like it's a, it's a continual process. It takes lots of work and it's infinitely rewarding. There's a parallels, I think, with internships. The more I found about how interns are yeah. mistreated and, and freelance writing is one of my writers, I, when I was writing this Gender Binder article, I went to the female authors who contributed and said, what are we doing wrong? You know, and what can we do? And one of them said, you know, I usually don't write for startups and you're a startup because I don't know if I'm going to get paid, but you guys, you were vetted by these two other people. So I knew you actually wrote checks and you pay fast and that's great. And I was like, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't think about that. So now 18 months into the publication, people trust us. They can ask, you know, they now have like a hundred people have written for us and a bunch of photographers. They can ask, hey, does Glenn Fleischman actually write checks? Like, yeah, he does. He's not one of those people. Yeah, the the class issue is of great interest to me as well because I grew up very poor in rural Indiana, and I just I am so, I feel so lucky, grateful, appreciative for the people who helped me as I was growing up because there was no internship I could take unless it was paying, and I I managed to get one, and it was a publishing internship, <laughs> and that and that's how my career started. But you know, some people really helped me, and without that assist. Like, I'd I'd hate to think of myself still, you know, on the farm. But that's that really concerns me, both for writers and interns and people who are trying to make it, because there are there are definitely people who can afford to work for free and and kind of climb up the ladder because they have a family or, or support system that that can make up for that missing paycheck. And you even have the issues of like, uh, you know, for I think female writers or, uh, you know, people on the on the LBGQT continuum and people of color, there's like all of these issues that affect that, you know, as a white man, I have never I've been never been harassed online. I've never been belittled by, you know, I think I've been belittled by an editor once in my career. I mean, you know, like all these things that never occur to me. And I've learned Twitter has been a wonderful way to learn what I thought I knew. The universe is so much bigger of what I didn't know about. I mean, I think I was sensitive to it. And now I understand, and as an editor even more, is that I think both interns and freelance writers face that like harassment, belittlement, uh, marginalization, being asked to take lower wages, being asked to work for free, all those things. And those are all deterrents. Those are all things that are like, ah, oh. and so that means the people like me who never get, never get buffeted, never get harassed, never whatever, we're going to be like, oh, I'll just apply, I'll just send this pitch out to 5,000 places and maybe someone will take it. And I, and I could work, maybe afford to work for free as well. Yeah. I mean, there's something that, that I like to call 
middle class confidence, which is that it's not actually just about the paycheck. It's also about sort of a, a, a a frame of mind and a mindset of being able to take risks and knowing that you'll probably be okay even if something terrible happens. That's right. You've got the safety of um, your family. Because your I have, even if, even if I don't make very much money, which I don't because I'm a freelancer, like I have friends who make more money or I, you know, I, I have parents who have friends who make more money who maybe could pull through in a crisis or I know I will have a place to stay if something mm-hmm. happens to my apartment or whatever. Just that very baseline like survival stuff. I think at all kinds of interesting levels really affects uh, the way that people enter the business and the way that people are supported in the business. And also it affects creative risk, mm-hmm. the kinds of creative risks you're willing to take. Let's pause for a moment so I can tell you about another sponsor, Media Temple, who has a special offer for New Disruptors listeners, which you can hear at the end of this message. So their grid service has been the web hosting choice of more designers, developers, and creative professionals than any other platform. You know they've been around for years, and they offer quite a bit in one place. A single grid account can host anything from your portfolio site to a 100 different client projects. That flexibility means the grid is ready for anything you throw at it. They have hundreds of servers working together in the cloud to keep your sites online, even if you're suddenly on the front page of the most popular site on the internet. It's going to stay up. And here's the thing. They now have SSDs. Those are solid state drives behind their web hosting. This will load your sites up to 50% faster. It's all managed through their own simple custom control panel, and it's backed by their 24 by 7 live support. Media Temple also has virtual private server solutions if that's what you need. You can go to DV Developer or DV Managed Hosting Plans. And here's the special deal they have for New Disruptors listeners. You can use the promo code TND, that's TND like the New Disruptors, and get 25% off your first month of web hosting. You go to mediatemple.net. Enter the promo code TND when you sign up and get that 25% off your first month of hosting. And now back to the podcast. I think we've talked a lot about, you know, writers, supporting writers, the whole field. You guys started a publication. That's a big risk. Something yes. new and exciting, <laughs> different, uh, totally engrossing. I've, I've been, I didn't actually start the publication, but I came in really early and then took it over. So I got a little bit of a feeling for that. But uh, so Scratch Magazine. Sounds like you guys have been thinking a lot about all these issues. How did it culminate into starting an actual publication and putting all your eggs into that publication? Well, I think you just said it. I mean, both of us have been working sort of and thinking and dealing with with these general topic areas a lot in our respective careers. And we knew each other from the Internet. Oh, so you guys didn't know each other in person. You only knew each other online. Oh, so we met in person for the first time yesterday. That is so fantastic. I had no idea. So, Jane, are you in Virginia? I'm not sure where you live. You're in Virginia now, right? And in Modula, you're in San Francisco. Well, we're in Seattle as we speak, but yes, right. Okay. Um, and so this is a truly born digital publication. Um, yeah. And that's sort of continually amusing to, I think, both of us <laughs> and everyone we tell it to. Um, but Jane and I knew who each other were. She had followed Who Pays Writers, and I obviously followed her blog and, and her Twitter account. And as every writer should. <laughs> and um, we met because I pitched her in the capacity, in her capacity at the VQR, I pitched her a piece that was related to, you know, making a living and, and, and the idea of having day jobs as a writer, which she accepted and we published together. So I guess the way we met was that you were my editor. <laughs> and, you know, after that, we kept, sort of kept on talking about this stuff, and it became very clear over phone calls and a couple months of time that, like, we had a lot more to say and we had a lot more interests in common. And 
I'm trying to remember how exactly the magazine part came into it, but somehow that just like, you know, snowballed into we're starting a publication. It's, it's too, too big for a blog. Do what? Too big for a blog. You said too big? To- well, well, yeah, too big for a blog. And also we wanted something that people would pay for. Mm-hmm. And um, You're crazy. Pay for writing. No, that's great though. Yeah. I mean, we didn't, I think early on, Mondula said, I don't want to do this for free. Yeah. And... And and also, I can't do this for free. And I was on board because I'm interested in people paying for valuable content. And I knew that we were going to produce something that was, was worth charging for. Yeah, and I think that's... So that's part of the fun of it for us, which I think you're doing a little bit of, too, with the magazine, is we're part of the experiment, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, like we're being really open about uh, the way that we're choosing to publish our whole process, the finances, the relationships behind it. We have the transparency index in every issue, which tells you all the good gossip about who knows who and how, and also how much things cost and how much money we make or don't make or whatever. And I think that's part of it for us is, you know, sort of jumping into this like, oh, we're going to do a digital publication. We're going to choose to do it in these formats right now. And we're going to like really sort of put our feet in the water and be like, okay, let's try this. And let's, let's ask people to subscribe to a magazine and not have ads and see what happens. Um, and you're, you're totally out of your mind. I know you think that's crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's not to say, and so I think that's, and I think that's very much an object lesson in many ways about sort of how to make a publication now. And we're learning every day and we're going to share everything we learn along the way. It seems like a wonderful time to do it, though, because you didn't have to invent a lot of wheels. There are like three wheels on the vehicle already. Like you have an app, which you didn't build a custom app. You have a website. It looks fantastic. I'm not sure where that came from. It's a great website. 29th Street. Oh, that's, oh, that's yeah. right. Because yeah, this is a platform. Uh, like uh, there's Type Engine, 29th Street. Um, was it uh, Glide? There's a, f- a few different uh, – Ad- Adivist at some level. They're not magazine-oriented, but these platforms for publishing via app, via website. And then you've got a payment mechanism, which is Tugboat Yards, which is one of – the many different ways now people, I mean, it's not, talking about yards is comparable to Patreon, but it's a very different model also. It's still, it's the idea of supporting people, but in your case, it's really a subscription. It's not a donation, although it's, it's you can do both. It's, you can um, add more money on yeah, top. the Tugboat model is basically like it's it's a subscription and subscription management community, mm-hmm. but you can also do basically donations and you, effectively crowd raising. So subscription plus um, patronage on on top if you want to do patronage. Yeah, so like if you go to our Tugboat page, you can give us five dollars to buy us a drink, or mm-hmm. you can subscribe to the magazine, or you that. can give us two hundred dollars as a donation to help us pay writers. You know, like there's a whole mm-hmm. wide range of options there that we'll continue to be like playing with and and experimenting with you can offer rewards similar to a kickstarter um there's a lot of possibility in that platform we haven't we we, we're we're sort of just just starting it so Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting i'm interested in how uh how crowdfunding not only has it become i mean so kickstarter boy i've been looking at the numbers like kickstarter and indiegogo and the rest if you just look at rewards-based crowdfunding it could be 500 million dollars in 2014, very easily, it might be more. Last year was well over 300 million distributed. So that's a powerful force when you really only need you know tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars to do something. The money's being distributed to arts and publications and books and and whatever. But I'm I'm fascinated by the the transformation we're already seeing, like tugboat yards and Patreon and other tools that let you and Beacon as a very specialized example for journalists, but that let you have a, a rolling feast that you don't put it all into one big effort, but that it's a constant level 
of support and you can kind of – I mean I've had this joke for a while that like crowdfunding is just – like retail sales are crowdfunding in reverse, right? You make the thing and you pay for it. And crowdfunding is you pay for it's it and then someone makes the thing. Yeah, and it, but it's right, – and it, the, the rewards thing always makes it confusing. The fact that there's like a rewards component of it has made crowdfunding seem like something – like it's not public broadcasting. But I mean it is a pre-order sometimes. Sometimes it's a conceptual thing. But the fact that there's now a continuum that makes it really – uh, there's a long thing from conceptual to pre-order to retail sale or even subscription. And those are now – there's so many options among that. You're not stuck with like, OK, we've got to put everything together. And if we don't rate – like Matter, uh, the publication Matter a couple of years ago, they raised $140,000 I think for nonfiction long form. And then they got acquired, right? They did. Yeah, after a year they got acquired. But they had about – you know they raised enough money to run about a year and they got bought by Medium. And now they're publishing for free. They changed to free over there because Medium's looking into – it's an experiment in what people will read as opposed to so far what people will pay to read. But So it's a different a different model. But that was – for Matter, they didn't have a – there wasn't, I think, an option for them to go into the subscription thing as a startup at that point. They thought they'd put all the eggs in a basket and see what happened. Right, Yeah. Um, wow, you just said a lot of things. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's my that's my modus operandi. But Which I, here is your modus operandi. Yeah. But um, I think. I'll say something like mildly controversial, which is Excellent. that I feel kind of over crowdfunding. Do you guys feel the same way? I mean, I know you just did a really successful Kickstarter. I mean, I, I, I'm over it and not over it. I will say the middleman aspect is never exciting to me that you have to pay other people to run it. But um, I think for me, there's there's an interesting dynamic between like. There are so many new tools and so many new platforms and so many new ways of supporting work, but there are also not that many new ways, right. you know, like it's like, uh, when smartphones first came out, my boyfriend was like, oh yeah, look, you can do this thing you can already do, but in your phone, mm-hmm. like, it's actually like, you already know, like we already do this. We're just doing it using this tool, you know? Um, so I think it's, it, you know, on one hand, like I get really excited about all the possibilities and I think that we're very open to sort of like rolling with those possibilities as they come along. On the other hand, I'm sort of like, yeah, essentially you still need to build a community and get people to pay you money for the stuff you publish. I think crowdfunding only works in two ways. One is you already have a community you're bringing there and they bring in other people, or you do something that's so weird and compelling like a Pebble Watch, which is typically a product, or it's something artistic or visionary enough that people Music. go nuts it over it. It works for records. Yeah. Oh, right. People, it works yeah. pretty well for records. Because you can share, a musician can share what they do uh, in a way that, like, you know, if you're a musician, you go on to, you, you, could, you could be a musician and go on to Kickstarter and be looking for $5,000 to get some studio time and you could get that five grand from your fans or you might wind up suddenly getting $50,000 because people shared your music samples. There's something about that that's more compelling than a lot of other medium to get things. Or, or art. Cartoonists have seen some crazy Kickstarters that are well out of the scale yeah. of the audience they have. But most people, most Kickstarters, I mean, this isn't a dirty secret, but you look at the stats, everyone focuses on the way over funding. Most Kickstarters that fund, fund between, I think, 105 and 110% of the amount that they set out to raise. So people gauge their community. I had We funded at about 120, 130%, which was great. But my goal was, I thought, we need about 1,500 people to make this work, and we got 1,465 people, which is the unseen hand of the market going, there you go, that's what you need. There's this interesting trend right now in uh, in book publishing where there are startups that want to com- combine crowdfunding with 
like a traditional publishing process. I think there were actually two announced recently. Mm. Um, and the crowdfunding and crowdsourcing part of it sometimes just relates to kind of a Kickstarter model where they're trying to see if there are enough readers or people willing to pay for the book before it's then contracted and mm. then put through some kind of traditional process. Some of it's more like crowdfunding the actual editorial and production work in some form. And those things so far, I just don't get it. Like, I totally understand the value and power of it, and I, I think it works well for some writers to do it as kind of a, like a direct relationship with your reader. But why you would want to put a traditional, so well, sort of some kind of traditional publishing process in the middle of that or layer it on top, like I have not seen that work yet. And there have been really brilliant people who have tried it, among them Richard Nash, who oh, yeah. started, is it uh, Red Lemonade? Um, yeah, he's got, what is it, Tiny Demons? It's, uh, oh, Small Demons. Small Demons, yeah, yeah. He's actually moved on to Byliner. Um, oh, oh, good, yeah, Byliner. Yeah. Byliner is another interesting model about paying for content. And, <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Yeah. But, I mean, he tried uh, Cursor, I think, was like the umbrella. And I remember him talking about it at Book Expo several years ago. Yeah. And there was so much excitement about it. And he talked about it like it was going to be the future. And I believed him. And I was, and then it kind of didn't work out the way we all thought it would. And I just like, man, if he couldn't do it, I'd, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. If he can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I think also, you know, the vast percentage of all those companies that all of us just name-checked have pretty large amounts of venture capital funding. Um, is that true? Well, do you think? Kickstarter was funded relatively modestly. And then they, and they to take, start with. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't think they've taken a ton of money in, though. I think they've actually done very well on fees, or they haven't announced it publicly. But yeah, a lot of the... Uh, the tech the, sort of yeah, publishing tugboat, crossovers. Yeah. And this is, this is I mean, Marco Arman, who um, founded the magazine, he always has... Yeah. His, everything he's done has been self-funded, uh, at least initially. Um, no, I think all his own ventures have been self-funded because, you know, he's worried about burning other people's money. And there's a you know, medium, for instance, which the magazine is part of an experiment there about. Um, we have a collection. We get paid for curating a collection, bringing new content there, and so do a bunch of other people either associated with publications or not. Right. And Medium is funded by you know, Ev Williams, his own money, and then they just raised like, $25 million in a private placement round. So there's a piles of money. And like as a writer, I'm delighted to take other people, and an editor in this case, I'm delighted to take other people's money if, it, if my interests align with them and I don't feel that I'm – that I'm out of it. But yeah, but it doesn't yeah, prove whether the model works if venture capital is funding something and us taking the money doesn't prove if the model works. So I think there's like a really interesting thing going on right now, which I'm sure you would have all kinds of opinions about, Glenn, and you as well, Jane, um, which is, you know, this sort of meeting of tech and publishing. And I think, you know, that was one of the things we were thinking about when we chose a platform and we, we chose to work with 29th Street because I think they do a really great job of they're bringing magazines into the digital space, but they are primarily interested in in the content like they're primarily mm -hmm. interested in magazines they aren't sort of they aren't distracted by the shiny tools and bells you know and so i think that's a really interesting thing that's happening right now is there's a lot of different startups getting into publishing and i don't know to sort of flip the interview i'd be curious <laughs> to hear what you think about that <laughs> Well, I'm, you know, I get concerned about the amount of the the number of publications that can be sustainable. And, you know, I mean, frankly, the magazine, I keep calling it an experiment because we don't know where it's going to go. And yeah, likewise. Be, and, yeah, and Scratch, right? I mean, you guys, it's we're all trying to figure out what's happening. It's it'd be wonderful if you could launch something and say, this is great. We got the number of subscriptions we need for the next year, and we know exactly what's going to happen for the next year. But my concern, there was there's sort of been a, so many platforms uh, that are being built to support periodicals. And it's rough because I don't know how many people 
will absolutely will actually subscribe. But we know that there's you know tens of billions of dollars in America each year spent on print periodicals. We know people will pay the money. We know there are hundreds of millions of people who subscribe to, uh, you know, the United States is a weird thing. Our newspaper readership is way down and newspapers have folded. In other parts of the world, Mexico, uh, Denmark, I think Sweden, they've had incredible explosive growth yeah. in newspaper because of changes in models or improvements in literacy in Mexico and in even places where there's a plenty of uh, internet delivery, actual print newspapers have gone through the roof. So we're in this weird place where it's like, God, does nobody want to pay for content? It's like, no, in our are the way that America got structured, everything worked. They don't. So I guess I'm I'm still concerned. Yeah. Though, can we find enough readers willing to pay? I hope so, because I know they're willing to pay in certain formats and venues. We think they're willing to pay, but we also don't think that can be your only game. Yeah, and I think that at least in my experience in the publications I worked for, people are not just buying a publication; they're also usually buying into your mission or why you're doing what you're doing. And I think that really lies at the heart of Scratch in part that, you know, we want to have a conversation about writing in money that's very transparent and authentic. And this is something that writers really need right now. They want conversations, they want understanding, they want to, you know, be able to sustain a career. And so I think that the magazine is like the first foray into a much larger community that we're building that could include, I hope it includes things like education and partnerships and collaborations with other organizations in the writing and publishing community uh, and books and other things that a magazine can't do by itself. There, there's so many different facets. And so the magazine is kind of like the central place where it all gets started, where we start the conversation and bring people together under the same kind of philosophy. And then it, it spreads out from there. So let me let's finish on a controversial question because there's always finish on controversy, which is should we ever write for free? The old discussion because we talked about that through there. It's you know and I've written for free at different times. I usually write for pay, but I also understand that I'm lucky to have been asked relatively little to write for free, uh, and I I have specific expertise areas in which you're paid because that expertise is scarce, you know, like Wi-Fi or when I was writing certain kinds of Mac stuff about security, you have to pay for that because there's only a few people who can actually do that writing. So should we write for free? And if so, when and for whom? Um, should is sort of a tricky word because there's a lot of, Must you? there's a lot of presumptions in that. Yeah, I no, think one good. of the, the things that. about writing for free is that, you know, depends, um, you know, like if you have a comfortable income or if you have someone else who's supporting you and you have a project that you really want to do great, I write for free. You know, um, people are sometimes surprised by that because they're like, aren't you the who pays writers girl? Um, <laughs> can I unpack that too? Is when I say that it's, I realize there's a, um, the question I asked is inherently wrong because it's should publications ask people to write for free is the one side That's a good and question. should you choose as a writer to write for free on the other and I actually come down to the publications that almost never ask for free writing but a writer is free to choose to do whatever they want and they including not get paid. I think that's a great distinction I think also sort of the way I tend to think about it is two things. One is sort of like is the relationship that you're being asked to participate in an exploitative one? Ooh, yeah. So like you know who pays writers? Maybe not who pays writers. Maybe who is making tons of money off your writing? And I don't mean like a specific guy in a corner office or whatever, because that's rarely the case, although it sometimes is the case. So I think that's an interesting question that I think a lot of writers should be asking themselves is like, is this an exploitative relationship? And I think for me personally, what it comes down to for me is like, my line is, should I work for free? So like... If I if if it feels like work, if it smells like work, if it tastes like work, I want to get paid for it. 
So that's my personal take as a writer. Yeah. I think it's it's a very difficult question that each writer um, responds to or differently as their career changes. Sometimes I think writing for very cheap is just the same as writing for free. Like the, the $50 blog entry that takes you 10 hours to write. Yeah. So, so I don't necessarily make a distinction. If, if you're not really making a living wage, then there's, I think there are two things though, two valuable things that can come from it. There's like the cliche of exposure, which I, I think sometimes is valid. Yeah. It's not as valid as often as it's given as a reason, but sometimes it opens up opportunities you might not have otherwise um, gotten down the line. And sometimes you're writing for love and you're writing the sort of thing that no one's really going to pay you for. So, um, but I, I always like, I think Manjula said it exactly right, which is, is the relationship exploitative? Because I know a lot of people who run um, digital only publications and they can't pay because they're not charging for their content. And so that said, I think publications that don't pay get the kind of writers they deserve. That's almost like the Craigslist, Craigslist argument. I never list anything for free on Craigslist because it's more of a hassle than charging five dollars. No, you put it for five dollars. Yeah. yeah, that's like the rule. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I think also you know I love that you flipped that question, Glenn, and put it on publishers because I also think like a really interesting player in this whole question is the editor, and I can't tell you every editor I know wants to pay more. Yeah. It's, 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 it's rarely that there's some evil editor going, I'm going to get all this for free. Like that is not actually how it tends to work, particularly not at smaller level publications, you know? And so I think that like, I think it's fabulous to ask publishers, you know, maybe who, you know, to, to think about that question for themselves. And I also think that like the writer editor relationship again can, can be one that, that is more productive. And I think that I hear from a lot of writers who, who feel a lot of anger towards editors. And, um, I think that was something that came out in our preview issue. We had a a round table of web editors, um, with Alexis Madrigal from Mm -hmm. the Atlantic and Dan Kreis from slate and Nicole from the toast. Um, was that, yeah, that was it. And so that was something that I can't remember who said anything, I think Dan said it. I don't know. That was something that, that was that was very felt. Is, is they were like, you know, we actually want your emails and we want to respond to your emails and we feel like assholes for approaching people and saying like, will you write this amazing piece for us for fifty bucks or two hundred bucks or whatever it is. Well, I think you've got um, an interesting piece there about the about the exploitative part. It's like is somebody else making a ton of money off me? Nobody wants to feel that way, and it's easier. Who pays writers was a way to sort of understand that too. You saw. Outlet X is paying $100, but their, you know, their advertising rate is $20,000 a page. This came up, the Harlan Ellison rant, which you guys must know, the pay the writer. Pay the writer. Yeah, I'll link that in the show notes. And his thing was, he was dealing with some massive corporation that was going to make these Star Trek DVDs, which they're going to make some, I mean, this isn't even a question of it. Anyone's going to make money off it. They're going to make a billion dollars off these DVDs. And they had budgeted for everything except paying for his time to come in and do commentary. And he's like, why aren't you paying everybody? You're getting paid, right? Every, the guy who's making the DVD, the DVD, like they budgeted every item except for actual creative people's input because that's not valued and so the budgeting you can also have a long conversation with graphic designers about that oh god yeah Yeah. what are you doing but so so right so our the our roundtable conclusion is is that you can you you can make the um and i've come i've talked to this so many people too is that so neither of you saying you shouldn't write for free 
it's rather that you should make sure the relationship you're engaged in with the publication is one that you're comfortable with. It's actually like a good, yeah. you know, it's like a romantic relationship. It's like, am I comfortable with this? Am I being taken advantage of? And, and if you're comfortable with it, then it's fine, but you shouldn't be forced into, there shouldn't be that exploitative, coercive part of it. This came up with Amanda Palmer and the, the musicians where they were paying yeah. some musicians and they weren't others. And she said, we're paying some of them in love and we're putting something, we're doing some barter. Some of them are riding with us on the tour bus for free. And the end, she's like, nope, you know, you're right. We're just going to pay everybody. There's too much money in the system. We should be paying everybody. But we didn't think of it because we've been poor for so long. We've been struggling for so long. This has been our, our economy has been this. And my thing about it was she didn't force, she didn't call musicians to say, if you don't play with me for free this time, I will never hire you. She said, does anyone want to play with us? And here's, we'll give you beer and love. And I thought that was a different thing than saying you have to work for us for free if you want to have a relationship with us. It is different. I also think that goes back to what you were saying about, um, you know, sort of uh, about getting pitches from women, which is like people, people have become so accustomed to scarcity thinking that they no longer ask for what they deserve. It's true. So we should ask for what we should deserve. We should not get involved in abusive writing, editing, publishing relationships. And everyone should go to scratchmag.net, and it'll be in the show notes, to, to read more about being a writer and read about what people pay. And everyone go become a subscriber, too. People should be subscribing to magazines. Subscribe. It's only 20 bucks. That's right. Excellent. Jay, do you have a last word? No. no. <laughs> well, thanks for, thanks for having me to your hotel room for this recording, live recording from Seattle. Thanks very much. Thanks. Now we're going to raid the mini bar. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.